Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. This afternoon, the trail has traveled is being recorded on the edge of the Bitterroot River. I'm sitting here with Chris Servine. He has been a grizzly bear biologist since 1975. He's also the president and board chair of the Montana Wildlife Federation. Chris retired in 2016 after 35 years with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, where he served as the agency's first and only grizzly bear recovery coordinator. In that role, he oversaw the management of grizzlies across the lower 48 states, including in the Greater Yellowstone, Northern Continental Divide, Cabinet Yak, Selkirk, and the Bitterroot areas. Chris has also worked on bear management issues around the world. Chris has a PhD from the University of Montana, where he continues to work as an adjunct professor of wildlife conservation. Well, first of all, Chris, thank you so much for sitting on the edge of the river with me on the trail less traveled. Well, I'm glad to be here, Mandela. It's a beautiful day to sit out here and visit in um, one of those perfect Montana afternoons, huh? My first question for you is, where did you grow up, and how was adventure and grizzly bears part of your childhood? Well, I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania, and I was always trying to be outside and do things outside, exploring creeks and ponds and wetlands, looking for frogs and turtles and the minimal wildlife that still survived back there. I was an avid wildlife person for a long time, even from a young age. I managed to get a job at the Philadelphia Natural History Museum when I was about 14. That job was taking care of the animals they used in the shows that they did for people that came to the museum. And wasn't too long, I started giving the shows myself on the weekends when the regular people weren't there. And then I got a summer job doing that. And so from age 14 on, I was giving programs to people about wildlife. And we had lots of animals that we could show to people, tell them about them. It was kind of the exposure of the urban folks there in Philadelphia to wildlife in general. So we had a big snapping turtle. We had an alligator who was about three feet long and an anaconda who was about nine feet long and various snakes and a porcupine who would just sit on your arm and make noises and, uh, and skunks and raccoons and all these things, all these live animals. And I would tell people about them and where they lived and where they could be found and so speaking to the public about wildlife was something I did from long ago. And so I did that every summer for a summer job and then on weekend jobs until I left high school. And then my first urge was to get out of the East. And the reason for that was I had seen the National Geographic special on grizzly bears with the Craigheads who were working in the Yellowstone Park on grizzly bears. And that National Geographic special really got my interest going. 
And I was convinced that I wanted to get out of the East where there were too many people and go out and go to Montana where there were grizzly bears. And I applied to the University of Montana and I arrived with a suitcase and I had never been here before. And I stepped off the plane. I didn't know anybody. I had never been here before. And it was September and it was a very vivid memory for me because it was snowing. And uh, it was an early storm, fall storm, and I had left the East Coast where it was hot and muggy in September, and I came here and it was snowing, and I thought, wow, this is really going to be a cool place because it's already snowing and it's only September. This is so cool. And basically, I never went back. So I was eager to get out of the East. I managed to do it, and I never went back. And You know, I went to school at the University of Montana as a wildlife biologist, got a work-study job with the Wildlife Research Unit. John Craighead was the leader of the Wildlife Research Unit, and Bart O'Gara was the assistant unit leader, and they were my mentors, particularly Bart O'Gara. As an undergraduate, I worked with various projects. You know, in the summertime, I'd go out with graduate students and help them out on eagle surveys or prairie falcon surveys. I took care of the eagles that John had. John Craighead had a, a bunch of eagles at the university and also some at his house, all golden eagles. And as part of my work-study job was to feed and take care of those animals and then also to exercise them. I learned about the techniques of falconry and how you can fly eagles for exercise, train them to come back to you, and then I would climb up Mount Sentinel with them every afternoon and fly them off the hillside. I had a big glove, of course, and a bag full of meat, and they would come back, and they would soar over the hillside and come back when they were called, and they would get their exercise that way. So that was a pretty, pretty amazing job. I was really lucky to do that. I was really into eagles at that point, and when I graduated from the University of Montana, I went to the University of Washington, and I worked on bald eagles and did a winter ecology study on bald eagles on the Skagit River in western Washington. And then when I finished that at the University of Washington, I was going to go and do a Ph.D. on bald eagles again. And the problem was there was no funding for any bald eagle studies, and I couldn't get funding for a Ph.D. study. And so I came back to Missoula looking for a job, trying to find what to do. And Chuck Jonkel was working at the forestry school at the university and starting a grizzly bear project, which was called the Border Grizzly Project. I applied to be one of his assistants, and I got hired by Chuck to assist in that project, and I started working on grizzly bears. And after a couple years, I began a project for my PhD on grizzly bears on the Mission Mountains, on the west slope of the missions particularly. That's what I did for my PhD, looking at the grizzly bears in the missions, and we trapped bears on the west side and the east side radio-collared bears, monitor their movements in the missions, what they did, how they lived, where they went, and what they ate. And that was funded by the tribe, the CSNKT tribe, because they were interested in building a grizzly bear management plan for the Mission Mountains. And the work that I did was used as a basis for their management plan. And just when I graduated in 1981 with my PhD in grizzly bears, they were hiring the grizzly bear recovery coordinator to implement the grizzly bear recovery plan and the Fish and Wildlife Service was looking for somebody and I was in the right place at the right time because I was the only person that had actually completed a PhD on grizzly bears in Montana at that point. 
I was available and I started the job as a recovery coordinator and I did that for 35 years. I wasn't good at anything else. Chris, I'd like to talk to you about 1975, what was happening at the time and why grizzly bears needed to be listed under the Endangered Species Act. The grizzly bear originally, before the European settlers came to North America, they were found throughout the western United States. There were perhaps 50,000 grizzly bears in the western United States outside of Alaska. And they were found throughout most of the western states, starting from the Dakotas all the way down to Texas and going west. The state with the most grizzly bears at that time was California. And the first grizzly bears written record written by Europeans was written by some Spanish sailors who saw grizzly bears on the coast of California eating dead whales. And those big light-colored bears were seen by these sailors. They were described, and that's the first written record of grizzly bears in the lower 48 states. After that, of course, there were lots of records as Lewis and Clark came through and other explorers and encountered grizzly bears. But the point is that there were grizzly bears abundantly throughout the western United States. And with the advent of Europeans coming west, grizzly bears began to decline in numbers and range because people were killing them. People did not tolerate grizzly bears. There was a general intolerance of predators. There was a general intolerance and worry about the fact that grizzly bears could eat cattle. And if you were going to have a ranch business, you couldn't have predators around. So grizzly bears, wolves, all predators were eliminated wherever they occurred. In the end, what we saw was a rapid decline of grizzly bears until the prairie populations of grizzly bears, where they were quite abundant out there with the bison on the prairie, They were gone by the 1880s. And so if you think about that, Lewis and Clark came through in 1806 or so. There were 40 million bison in the American West at that point. And by the 1880s, the grizzly bears were gone and the wild bison were gone. The rapid decline of wildlife was pretty astonishing. And what we saw then was this creation of, there was a big, big population that used to be here and it they began to be isolated in a small island population separated from each other by people and human activities and these island populations were small in number and they're very vulnerable because grizzly bears have such a low reproductive rate and so one by one these all these island populations disappeared they winked out until by 1975 there were thought to be grizzly bears in six places. The Yellowstone ecosystem, the Northern Continental Divide, which we call the Glacier Bob Marshall Complex, the Cabinet Yak in Northwest Montana and North Idaho, the Selkirks in North Idaho and Northeast Washington, the North Cascades and the Bitterroot. So in 1975, it was thought that there were those six populations, that's all that was left. And that was, you know, perhaps 2% of their former range in the lower 48 states. Well, the grizzly bears were listed in 1975 under the Endangered Species Act because of this small number and this rapid decline. And they were listed as a threatened species, one that's likely to become endangered in the foreseeable future. And recovery plan was written in the late 70s and the recovery process started in 1981. So at that point, we had a first draft of the grizzly bear recovery plan, which outlined a series of tasks 
things that are necessary to fix the bears. And we began the process of helping bears out. Subsequent to that, as we began, we found that there were, in fact, no grizzly bears in the Bitterroot. And the last grizzly bears in the Bitterroot were killed in probably the late 40s, early 50s. And there were just about four or five grizzly bears in the North Cascades right along the U.S.-Canada border. And those bears were functionally extinct because they were isolated on the Canadian side and really there was no big population at all. And today we don't think there's any grizzly bears at all in the North Cascades. And so remember in 1975, we thought there were six populations. There were actually only four. And those four populations in total at that point, we don't know exactly how many bears there were, but probably in the neighborhood of 300 maybe, or 350 bears at the most. And that may be an optimistic estimate. At that time, when we started the recovery program, you know, we had four isolated populations that were separated. It were very small. The Yellowstone population was maybe 150 bears, maybe 175. The Northern Continental Divide population, maybe 100, 150. And the Cabaniac and the Selkirks both had, you know, probably 10, 15 bears in them. That was it. My job as the recovery coordinator was to implement the recovery plan and get everybody to work together to do the things that were necessary to help grizzly bears. And I began that process. So when we started, we had a limited number of bears. We had four separate populations. And we didn't have a lot of experience on how to fix this problem. That's the voice of Chris Servine. He has been a grizzly bear biologist since 1975. He's the president and board chair of the Montana Wildlife Federation. And today the trail less traveled is being recorded on the edge of the Bitterroot River. Chris, grizzly bears were listed under the Endangered Species Act in 1975. And I'm curious, was everyone happy about that? Like, what did the agencies think? What did people think? Were they on board with recovery? And what did you end up doing to recover the species? When we started the process, there was a real mixture of agency support for recovering grizzly bears. The states were basically resentful of the fact that grizzly bears had been listed under the Endangered Species Act because that took bears out of state control and brought them under federal control under the Endangered Species Program. And the states didn't like that. They had opposed the listing, and they thought that it wasn't really their job, the job of the federal government, to be involved with with grizzly bears, they should be managed by the state. The Forest Service, at that point, they weren't very interested in grizzly bears. When I would go talk to the Forest Service at the forest or ranger district level, they would just look at me like, you know, we don't do wildlife. And, you know, we do timber harvest and we build roads and we do forest activities, but we don't do wildlife. And the Park Service was probably the most supportive agency recognizing that there were problems with grizzly bears in the parks where they had bears for sure in Glacier and Yellowstone. There weren't any bears at Grand Teton at that point. But the Park Service said, well, you know, it doesn't really, we can't really talk about what's going on outside the park. We don't do outside the park boundaries, you know. Whatever happens out there is not our, our concern. And so we had all these agencies, the state and the federal agencies, that were all kind of in different places and they weren't working together. You know, my job was to get everybody to work together to implement the recovery plan. And in fact, it was very difficult to do that. Most agencies just kind of sat there at meetings with their arms crossed and, you know, they just 
didn't want to be involved. They just didn't like this. They were resentful. It wasn't their job. They didn't do wildlife. They couldn't look across the boundaries. It was real difficult. And so for the first two years, you know, it was clear that we weren't making a lot of progress in recovery because of this problem with agency cooperation. And at that time, the bear population was continuing to decline. It was clear that there were very few bears left in the Yellowstone ecosystem. At that point, we thought there were perhaps only 30 females left in the Yellowstone ecosystem, and they were separated from the nearest grizzly bear by well over 100 miles. So you had this island population, and they were going to disappear. And I thought we weren't going to be able to make this happen, and what was going to happen with my job is I was going to document the demise of the grizzly bear and watch this population decline and nobody would work together. And so I had an occasion to go back to Washington, D.C. and talk to some people in the Department of Interior and the Department of Agriculture and point out the fact that while we have the grizzly bear listed under the ESA at this point, we do not have cooperation among all the state and federal agencies. We're making very little progress and it's likely we're going to have extinction of the grizzly bears soon in the Yellowstone system, probably followed by the other systems. And these folks in Washington were alarmed by this, and they became very concerned. And uh, it wasn't like they were deeply concerned about grizzly bears. What they were deeply concerned about was that they didn't want grizzly bears to go extinct on their watch while they were in charge. And because the Yellowstone grizzly bears were very nationally famous because of the work of the Craigheads. They had been in National Geographic magazine several times. There had been really good TV shows about them and what they do and how they live. A lot of people knew about Yellowstone grizzly bears. And, and the fact that they were going to disappear, even though they were listed under the ESA, meant that people better start doing something different. And so, you know, they asked me what the problem was. And I said, the problem is that we don't have cooperation among all the agencies. Everybody's going in a different direction. And they said, well, we could write an MOU, a memorandum of understanding that we'll sign and we could get the governors to sign that says that we will work together, all of us, state and federal agencies, to implement the recovery plan which had all the details of what needed to be done to help grizzly bears, and that that implementation would begin to change the trajectory of the population. And they produced this document, and they got the four governors to sign it. And so the assistant secretaries of interior and agriculture and the governors of Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, and Washington all signed this, this agreement that they would agree to implement the recovery plan together. And that, in 1983, was a watershed moment that got everybody to pull in the same direction on the rope. And so when I went into the Forest Service then, they began to be quite interested because their assistant secretary, essentially the boss of the Forest Service, had said, we're going to do this. And the state fish and game departments began to be cooperative because their governors had signed this document. They didn't think much of the whole idea, but because the governors had signed it, they were going to have to do it. And so we began to work together to identify the things we needed to do to fix bears, reduce mortality, close some of the roads where there were so many roads built for timber harvest and never closed. There was just roads everywhere. There was a high mortality risk for grizzly bears and elk and lots of other animals. Build public support 
get the idea out to the public about what we needed to do to help bears and why bears were in trouble and what we could do to fix the problems. And we began to build public support. The public became, you know, really interested in this. And they like it. You know, grizzly bears are Montana state animal. And so they began to say, yeah, you know, well, this is pretty cool. We can do this. And so slowly but surely after 1983 we began to reduce mortalities more bears live longer they had more cubs who live longer to have their own cubs and eventually we started to see a trajectory change and so we went from that less than 200 bears in 1983 to over a thousand bears today in the yellowstone system and similar numbers in the northern continental divide system so that recovery process takes a long time, you know, from 1983 to the present day, it's a long time, but grizzly bears have one of the lowest reproductive rates of any mammal in North America. And so even if they live a long time and don't die, they don't have many cubs. The average female just has a few cubs during her lifetime. So that's what we did. And that's why we have what we have today, which is good populations Populations are doing well in the Northern Continental Divide and the Yellowstone. We still have a lot of work to do in the, the Selkirks and the Cabinet Yak. And of course, we were going to put bears into the Bitterroot as part of the recovery program, and we were going to reintroduce bears. The idea was to put 25 bears in there, take them from Canada, where we had cooperation with the Canadians, bring some bears in, put them in the core of the wilderness, and those 25 bears would gradually increase in the Bitterroot, which is the largest block of contiguous wilderness outside of Southern California in the United States. 5,200 square miles of contiguous wilderness in the Bitterroot. The only reason grizzly bears aren't there is we kill them all. But that reintroduction program, which was planned to start in the year 2000, was never funded because a new administration came into power in Washington and their first decision was not to fund that. So we still have a record of decision to put bears in there. It's just never been implemented. And we're in the process right now of doing the same thing in the North Cascades, coming up with a plan to reintroduce bears into the North Cascades to begin to build a population there where there's all kinds of good habitat. And the only reason the bears aren't there is that we killed all them too. The main reason people killed grizzly bears is they were intolerant of predators. And grizzly bears being a predator, you know, people didn't like them. And they were afraid of them. They thought they would kill livestock and they just didn't want them around. And so this sense of intolerance of, of animals like this was the driving force. Some people killed grizzly bears and sold the hides. They trapped them or shot them. The greatest killer of grizzly bears, though, was strychnine, where in the 1800s, and 1860, 1870, thousands of pounds of strychnine was brought into the American West and was distributed throughout the country. And so every animal that died whether it was a bison or cow, it was laced with strychnine and every animal that ate from that animal died. And so this strychnine killed all the bears, all the wolves, all the coyotes, all the ravens, all the eagles, everything. And the strychnine was just a, a lethal way to kill everything across the landscape. That's how we could amazingly kill all the grizzly bears in such a short amount of time. And all the wolves was the use of this poison. And then the general intolerance that anyone that was left were shot and pursued and, and eliminated. So, you know, it was a very grim story. And interestingly enough, California 
had more grizzly bears than any other state before the coming of the Europeans. And there were grizzly bears in the Central Valley. There were grizzly bears on the coast eating dead marine mammals. There were grizzly bears all over California. They thought enough of grizzly bears to put them on the state flag, and then they killed every last one of them. And so the last grizzly bear was killed in California in 1922. And the irony is that you think enough of the animal to make it your state animal and put it on the flag, and then you kill every last one. Today, the trail has traveled is being recorded on the edge of the Bitterroot River. And I'm sitting with Chris Servine. He has been a grizzly bear biologist since 1975. He's also the president and board chair of the Montana Wildlife Federation. We've been talking about his work in grizzly bear recovery. Chris, how are we doing now? What's recovery like in 2023? Well, we've come a long way. You know, we we probably have five times as many grizzly bears today as we had when we started the recovery program. And, you know, remember there were about 50,000 grizzly bears in the western United States. There may be like 2,300 right now. And those bears, most of them live in the Yellowstone ecosystem and the northern continental divide, which is the Glacier Bob Marshall complex. Smaller populations still in the Cabinet Yak and the Selkirks in North Idaho. And then no populations as yet in the Bitterroot of the North Cascades. So we've come a long way and we've got good progress with numbers of bears. And, you know, we've had really good cooperation among all the state and federal partners to get to where we are today. And the, the state biologists with the state fish and game agencies have been an integral part of the recovery program, working to understand the, the habitat needs and movement patterns and survival and reproductive rates of grizzly bears, working cooperatively with their federal partners to do research and monitor bears and minimize mortality do outreach and education, manage conflicts to minimize those conflicts. The states have, at the agency level, have been great partners in the process. So we've come a long way. Unfortunately, what we're seeing now is a change in the states so that at the political level of the states, they're no longer the partners they were when the the four governors signed the MOU to implement the recovery plan in 1983. I can't imagine we're going to get those four governors to sign an MOU to recover grizzly bears today. And what we're seeing is this an erosion of support for grizzly bear recovery at the political level in the states. It's very different now than it was when the four governors signed an MOU to implement the grizzly bear recovery plan. I don't think we could ever get those four governors to sign such a thing today. The changes that have happened in the legislatures and in the, in the governor's offices have been really unfortunate and are not supportive of predators at all. And what we're seeing is this erosion of conservation ethic at the political level. And in fact, the biologists who used to run grizzly bears and grizzly bear management and recovery under the cooperative effort have now been pushed to the background and politicians are now running grizzly bears and wolf management in the states and it's really a hostile environment for predators. I really worry about this. It's very different than it used to be and it's really unnecessary. A lot of the the information and the fears that these people have are not based on facts at all. They're just based on emotion and nonsense, you know, that wolves are going to eat all the elk or that grizzly bears are somehow a threat to the livestock industry. Um, You know, none of these things are true. 
And as a result, the legislators passed legislation that is really anti-predator, anti-science. It's important to realize that recovery is not just reaching a number of bears. Recovery requires that there be in place regulatory mechanisms into the future so that there is careful management of mortality, there's careful management of habitat, and that these, the things that the animals need to survive in the future are still going to be there. And what we're seeing is that the adequate regulatory mechanisms are being threatened by the politicians and this interference in politicians into the biological systems. And without adequate regulatory mechanisms, grizzly bears can never be delisted. And that is a really important point to make. We may have enough grizzly bears to reach the levels in the recovery plan, but if there is continual erosion of the regulatory mechanisms for mortality and commitment from the state agencies, and in some cases the federal agencies, to do the right thing after delisting, if they're not gonna commit to doing the right thing, then it's not possible to delist the grizzly bears because what will happen is we'll reverse the trajectory and we'll go right back down again. Grizzly bears are extremely vulnerable to humans and human activities. You know, people think of grizzly bears as this huge, powerful animal that is, you know, insurmountable. You know, they can just do anything. But the truth is that grizzly bears are super vulnerable. They're vulnerable to us and we can eliminate them. We almost eliminated them altogether. We were on the verge of losing grizzly bears altogether. We turned that around, and if we lose our resolve, change our mind, our politicians get involved in implementing management instead of biologists, and this management is based on nonsense and fear of predators, then the result will be that we will lose grizzly bears again. Let's let that soak in. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to The Trail Less Traveled, and today we're speaking with Chris Servine. He's been a grizzly bear biologist since 1975, and he's the president and board chair of the Montana Wildlife Federation. So Chris, if someone is listening out there, hopefully somebody's listening, and they want to be part of the recovery of grizzly bears, they want to make sure that they don't see the extinction of grizzly bears in their generation or in the next generation or the next generation after that, what can they do to help? People, if they want to help, they should be involved. They should speak to their legislators. They should speak to their governors. They should act and let people know that they support grizzly bears and they want good management of grizzly bears to continue. And we do a lot of efforts in the Montana Wildlife Federation to speak to the legislature. We testify against bad bills. We speak to the governors about issues related to to bears and wolves and other animals. We are a voice for the animals in Montana. And you can become a member of the Montana Wildlife Federation and really help us out. And we welcome more people to be members. And we work for the wildlife of Montana and we show up and we ask you to join us. Yeah, Montana Wildlife Federation has been doing this important work since 1936. You can find out more information by visiting montanawildlife.org. Chris, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about some fun facts in regards to grizzly bears. I just got back from the Alsec River Corridor. starts in the Yukon, ends in Dry Bay, Alaska. And that river corridor is home to both coastal and interior grizzly bears. I definitely notice a lot of differences in the size, and I think there's also differences in their behavior. But I'd like to just hand it over to you and maybe kind of start with that or any other interesting facts that you could share with maybe a younger audience in terms of grizzly bears. 
Well, grizzly bears are really pretty amazing animals. The native people used to think of grizzly bears as the animal that was reborn every year because they went underground as if they died and were not seen in the winter. And then they came out of the ground in the spring as if they were reborn. You know, it was kind of a magical animal to them that they were born every year again and came back. Grizzly bears are what we call opportunistic omnivores. They eat everything. It's easier to describe what they don't eat than what they eat. <laughs> they eat plants and berries and roots and tubers and insects. They'll eat meat if they find it. Usually the meat they eat is from something that's already died. They're pretty ineffective predators and they don't kill much on their own. In the interior Rockies where we are here around Missoula and uh, Western Montana, most of the bears, 70 to 80 percent of their diet is vegetation and insects. You know, they eat a lot of huckleberries, they eat green material, they'll eat green grass, green leaves, forbs. They'll dig up ant mounds, they'll dig up dead logs and dig out all the ants and grubs in logs. You know, they're very variable and adaptable to eating lots of different things. Normal size, big males, maybe five or six hundred pounds exceptional males that we've found in the northern continental divide ecosystem have been over a thousand pounds so there are some grizzly bears that are in the bob marshall complex in glacier park that are over a thousand pounds not a lot but there are some out there females in generally are as adults they're like three to to five hundred pounds females have their first young cubs usually when they're about four to five years old and then they have cubs every three years so they stay with their young for two full seasons and go back into the den with them twice to teach them how to live and how to behave. Uh, bears have a culture. If you define culture as the transmission of knowledge from one generation to another. And so the way bears behave to a great degree is based on what their mother taught them. And so you'll have some bears that eat moths, for example, like um, high elevations. There are army cutworm moths that fly up to these alpine areas and they eat alpine flowers at night. They're eating the nectar from the alpine flowers. And in the daytime, they'll go and, and burrow into the talus slopes and the grizzly bears will dig them up. So we have some, some of that happening in the Mission Mountains. We've got it in Glacier Park, places in the Yellowstone ecosystem and the Bob Marshall and the scapegoat. There are places where grizzly bears eat moths. But there are lots of grizzly bears that never eat moths because they've never been taught to do that by their mother. And so these cultures, there's a moth culture and then there's a, there's a culture that does this or does that. There's a culture in Yellowstone that eats spawning cutthroat trout around Yellowstone Lake. But that's a very small percentage, maybe only 15% of the bears in Yellowstone have ever learned to look for those trout and eat them. Most of the bears never eat trout. So this culture is something that is passed down from generation to generation and that gives us the unique qualities that bears have. Bears are, are very smart, they're adaptable, they think a lot, they remember a lot. You know, a, an old bear is 25 years, females can live 25 to 30 years. The oldest bear we ever knew of was 33 when she died. Most bears probably live into their late teens or early 20s. The major cause of death for grizzly bears is humans. Most grizzly bears don't die a natural death. They die because of conflicts with people or getting hit by cars or 
shot because somebody thought they looked like a black bear and they were black bear hunting. I mean, there's lots of ways that they can get into trouble. Bears are Montana state animal. They're a really wonderful part of our culture. It's really important to think about grizzly bears because they used to be found throughout all of the Western United States. Montana has more grizzly bears than any other state today outside of Alaska. And we should be really proud of that. The fact that we still live in a place where grizzly bears live and we have healthy grizzly bear populations here. And the fact that we can share our landscape with these magnificent animals is really important. And uh, we want to we want to make sure that we continue to see grizzly bears healthy across the Montana landscape because they're important. And we came really close to losing them. I mean, we would not have grizzly bears in the Yellowstone ecosystem today if it wasn't for the listing under the Endangered Species Act. They were probably within 10 years of disappearing in the Yellowstone ecosystem. In the Northern Continental Divide, in the Cabinet Yak and the Selkirks, those bears would probably be gone, almost all of them, except maybe in Glacier Park, if we hadn't listed them under the Endangered Species Act and worked together to bring them back from the edge of extinction in the lower 48 states. So we came really close to losing them. We've got them today. We want to keep them, and we should be really proud of the fact that we have grizzly bears in Montana. They're our state animal. We should be proud of that. Yeah, the Endangered Species Act was signed into law in 1973. Grizzly bears became listed in 1975. And Chris, who I've been speaking with today, was a major, major part of their recovery since 1975. I'm looking over at a dipper while Chris talks. We're sitting on the edge of the Bitterroot River. And Chris, I'd like to talk to you about keystone species. Are grizzly bears a keystone species? What does it mean to be a keystone species? And what would happen to the ecosystem in Montana if we did lose them? Well, what we're seeing is a tone of intolerance that is coming from politicians these days. And this intolerance for for animals like grizzly bears and wolves is really a, a sad state of affairs. And it didn't used to be this way for, you know, I was recovery coordinator for 35 years. And 30 plus years of that, we didn't see politicians delving into into grizzly bear management. We didn't see politicians making anti-grizzly bear statements or coming up with, you know, imaginary statements about how grizzly bears and wolves were going to eat all the elk and all the calves and put the cattle industry out of business and all this nonsense that they put up with. Grizzly bears are a very important species to the environment they live in. They bring a lot. They bring this this sensitivity. All the other animals that live in bear habitat, grizzly bear habitat, are sensitive to the fact that grizzly bears are around. They, they base their movements and their habitat use on where the grizzlies are. The grizzlies move nutrients in the systems they live in. They do a lot of digging for for tubers and roots of plants, and by doing that, they they recycle nutrients in the soil. They move nutrients across the landscape. They move animals like elk and deer that move across the landscape to be away from animals like grizzly bears that they don't want to be close to. That allows the areas to be used naturally and not overgrazed in certain places. You know, it provides a balance to the system to have grizzly bears on the landscape. And of course, grizzly bears bring something to us as humans, and that is the fact that wherever grizzly bears are, you're a lot more aware of your environment when you're in grizzly bear habitat. You know, you have to be aware. 
In order to avoid conflicts, you have to think about what the wind direction. You're looking for tracks. You're looking to see if there's any sign or you're walking through a really thick patch of huckleberries and you can't see very far. You need to be aware that maybe you should start making noise so the bears aren't surprised by you. You know, when you're in grizzly bear habitat, your senses are heightened and your sense that you know, the intensity of the experience that you have when you're in grizzly bear habitat is much deeper because grizzly bears are there. They bring that to us. And this real magical quality that grizzly bears have is the ability to burn into our memory everything that happens when we see one. So I talk to people that have seen grizzly bears 25, 30 years ago, and they could describe to me the day and the time of day and the wind direction and how far away they were and what the bear was doing and what everybody they were with is doing and the place they were and how far they'd walked. All these details are burned into their memory because they saw a grizzly bear. There's so many more questions I have to ask you, but I wanted to just kind of end with a little bit of hope and encouragement for the listener. You and I both work in conservation and a lot of the time, I encounter folks these days who seem to have become apathetic and feel like they can't actually make a difference. And so one thing I'm always reminding people is, if you think you're too small to make a difference, you've obviously never spent the night with a mosquito. That's that's an African proverb. What's one thing that we can do, whether it's recover grizzly bears or to protect wildlife and wild places here in Montana? Well, I think the biggest thing that we can do is to speak up and make our voices heard and don't let things happen that are wrong without somebody speaking up about it. If we don't speak up when people say things that are wrong, when people come up with imaginary statements about wildlife or why we should eliminate them or how dangerous they are or how grizzly bears cost us money, grizzly bears bring money. They bring a huge economy, millions and millions of dollars to Montana. The people that want to see grizzly bears come here because they want to see grizzly bears. They don't want to come here because they're looking for cows. And grizzly bears bring a robust economy to Montana. They bring a healthy environment to Montana, and we need to speak up for them. They can't speak for themselves. We need to speak up. We need to be there and show up before the legislature and the Fish and Wildlife Commission and write the governor and speak our mind that grizzly bears are important to us, and we want them to be healthy in Montana. We want grizzly bears to exist in Montana. We want them to be healthy, and we will speak up and we will vote. Awesome. I 100% agree with you. And if you heard all that and you're still overwhelmed, remember there's incredible resources and information that you can find through the Montana Wildlife Federation. You can become a member today and join us. You can learn more at montanawildlife.org. Chris, thank you so much for your time and energy joining me on the Trail Less Traveled. Thank you, Mandela. I appreciate it talking to you. It's a beautiful spot and beautiful day to talk about bears. I'll talk about bears anytime. Namaste, Missoula, and my listeners around the world. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series, dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world, taking you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. 
The Trail Less Traveled premieres every Sunday night at 6, Mountain Time, and you can stream it live online at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere, the show is also a podcast, available everywhere. You can learn more about our international outreach programs and see the full show archive of over 560 episodes by visiting traillesstraveled.net. My adventure tip this week is to become a member of the Montana Wildlife Federation. With the vital support of Montana Wildlife Federation members at the grassroots level, Montana Wildlife Federation has been leading the way since 1936 to conserve wildlife and wild places in Montana. And your donation supports this work to protect wildlife, habitat, and access. It's our state's oldest and most effective wildlife conservation organization. So please visit montanawildlife.org. This is an amazing opportunity for you to be a part of conservation of wildlife and wild places here in Montana. And I do get choked up talking about it because it's important. It's important for us to speak up on behalf of grizzly bears. It's important for us to speak up on behalf of the resources that we love. Living in Missoula is a privilege, but with privilege comes responsibility. So please do your part and consider becoming a member of the Montana Wildlife Federation. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please get outside and remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Speak up and use your voice on behalf of wildlife and wild places.